Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. If you weren't here this morning for Sunday school and if you have not met me before, my name is Joel Diffenderfer. My wife and I are uh, your partners for the gospel in Japan, and we are delighted to be here with you worshiping our great God this morning, who has displayed his glories in all of creation and in his Son, as we just sang about. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 16 today. Tonight, if you were to get in your car and go somewhere for dinner, I know, think about somewhere you really enjoy for dinner, right? Like, do you like pizza? Do you like pizza? Really good, deep dish pizza. Cheese is nice and melt. Maybe you don't. You're making a strange face. Maybe not so much, right? Some meal that you really enjoy. You said, okay, we're going to get in the car and we're going to drive there. Do you stop at 7-Eleven on the way and grab a candy bar? No, probably not. No, right? You're like, I'm, I'm going to have that awesome pizza. Not stopping for anything else, right? If you're going to your family, a family member's house. You really enjoy spending time with them, right? You're probably not going to, on the way, get out on the side of the freeway and start kicking around a soccer ball. Like, oh, we've got a little time to spare. Let's play here. Because that, des- you, that destination is in your mind, we're going straight there, right? Unless perhaps you're going on a longer trip. I don't know. What's, what's the furthest you've ever driven? Can you think about the longest trip you've ever gone on. We used to drive, my family lived in Georgia, we drive up here to Michigan, right? You have to stop then, right? You have to stop and eat food, you have to stop and use the bathroom. Sometimes you try and go as long as you can without, but you have to make stops along the way. But those are so that you may keep pressing on towards the goal, right? If the destination is greater than anything else along the way, We don't hesitate to get there. And that's what Paul is encouraging us in Philippians chapter 3 as he lays out the path to joy for us. And so we're going to read the text and then think about what Paul is saying. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. If you read Philippians, you will find that Paul likes to write about joy. He even starts in verse 4 of chapter 1, talking about joy. And here we come to chapter 3 as he rounding the corner, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord. He is calling his gospel partners to joy, because that's who the Philippians are. They're a church that partnered with him, just like you have partnered with us. And he knows that they're going through some of the same things he's going. Things that might not cause joy to stir up in us. Paul is as we see in chapter 1, in prison. He's been there for a while. He can't be going around to other churches preaching the gospel. He can't be going to other unbelievers and sharing the gospel with them. In a sense, he looks like he's failing his missionary work. And then we see at the end of chapter 1, that as he says to the Philippians, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. They are going through some of the same problems. People do not like them. People do not like the message of Christ that they are sharing. And to top it off, the person they sent to visit Paul almost died, as he says at the end of chapter 2, because he was so sick. It does not seem like a situation when we think about, wow, our pastor's in jail. People are insulting us. Some of us are literally on their deathbed. It does not seem like a situation in which some might say, rejoice in the Lord. But Paul knows that is the safe thing to say. That he is calling us to solid ground, to the middle of the road, to the middle of the boat, to stand firm. He's calling us to embrace joy. And he's doing that because embracing joy involves looking out for joy leeches that will suck you dry like a raisin. And he talks about them in verse 2 and 3, right? 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And we can tell from verse 3, those are people who are putting confidence in the flesh, in who they are and what they do. He's even pointing out that those people, those joy leeches, they are corruptions of the very thing they boast in. It's people who think they are holy, but are actually dogs, are unclean. It's people who think they are righteous and think they are doing good, but are actually, what, evildoers. It's those who are, think they are doing rituals and, and cutting their way into the kingdom that are actually scarring themselves because they're boasting in those things. And they're putting in, I'm doing this, I've done this, I'm this person. And so in seeking joy, they're actually sucking it from themselves. And anyone who's walking unsuspectingly by and will fall into their clutches, sucking joy from them. And so he's saying, look out for those who put confidence in something other than Christ. Something other than worshiping God in the Spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus. That's where the joy is. That's what he's pushing us to. That's where he's calling us to embrace joy. And so now we have Paul's big picture, right? Rejoice in the Lord. Look out for things that are going to steal your joy and cling to Christ. There's the big picture, right? But sometimes we need more than the big picture, right? If you go, to, you, you go visit a friend, maybe a friend or family member who lives in Texas, right? Big area, lots of open space. And they say, okay, oh, you want pizza? We're going back to the pizza. You want pizza? You need to go to King Super. I guess that's their version of supermarket. Nowhere else sells good pizza. So you have the big picture in your mind. Go here, don't go there. But you're like, I've never been to Texas. It's really big. I'm not that great of a driver. How do I actually get there? I want to know the step by step. And so Paul blazes the trail to joy for us now in verses 4 through 14. Starting with this, this claim that there are many things that have the appearance of joy or the appearance of value or the appearance of a sound footing in verses 4 through 6. And his claim is not just that he's read a book about it, you know, I can go to the library, pick up a book on birds, read about them, and talk to you about birds. <laughs> he says, I've studied them. I've, I've lived with the birds, right? He's done these things. He's put his confidence in these things before. He knows that they look nice, but are empty. He was living the social media good life. Right? Some people, we, you know, we see their pictures online, or maybe they show us, you know, we meet with them, they show us their pictures of their kitchen or their kids. And it's like, wow, that's awesome. Wow, I wish my life was like that. And they say, well, the secret is actually when I'm not taking this picture, or outside of the camera, you know, the house is a mess. <laughs> right? Or five minutes before that, or five minutes after this, my dog threw up all in my bed. Something, you know? 
But Paul is saying, no, I could take my smartphone at any time, take a picture of my life, and it is exactly what the world wanted. What anyone would want to boast in. Or what any Jew would want to boast in. And so he says, we could put our confidence in who we are. Right? He was circumcised according to the Old Testament law. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the family of promise laid out in Scripture. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's not just, I'm an Israelite. He could trace back to prove, yes, I belong to this line. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I, I could boast in that. People could boast in that. Whether it's a, yes, I have this. I'm the right lineage. I'm the right type of person. I have the right stuff. Or the flip side of boasting that we don't often think about, but is actually boasting. I'm not that kind of person. I don't have that stuff. I don't have those gifts. And, and, and being sorrowful because you don't have it. Still boasting because you're putting confidence in it and you don't have it, so you have no confidence. We could put confidence in being part of a Christian family. We could put confidence in our spouse serving at church. We could put confidence in our parents' role at church. We could put confidence in being connected with other good churches or ministries. Or we could put confidence in what we do, which is what he says, right? As to the law, a Pharisee. That is, he had unsurpassed knowledge of the law. He won every Bible quiz tournament. <laughs> he was always, you know, could always point out to people when they misquoted scripture or when they got some fact about the kings in Isaiah wrong. He had unsurpassed zeal. Now he's saying that as a persecutor of the church, he gave his life over to building God's people. He didn't let the moss grow under his feet. His life was arrayed around, I'm going to do whatever it takes to strengthen the people of God. I will go wherever it takes me. I will do whatever it takes me. He was... In one sense, his heart was on fire for what he thought was the Lord. Or unsurpassed obedience. And he says something that knowing he was not someone who believed in Christ sounds almost ridiculous. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. <laughs> No one could whip out their Old Testament and say, Oh, Paul, you're not doing this. Oh, you're not, you're not obeying Leviticus 11.2. He had what looked like to be the perfect life. If anyone could boast in it, it was him. We could put confidence in our Bible knowledge that we're always correcting people. Or at least we know in our heads they got it wrong. I got it right. We could put confidence in the time we spend here with other believers. 
the time we serve our brothers and sisters, how much we witness to other people and say, yes, you could do the same for me, whip out your smartphone, take a picture of my life, and I am the perfect picture of Christian. Comforting ourselves when we sin with, well, but I, you know, I, I spent time in the Word this morning. <laughs> or making deals with the Lord, you know. Oh, I, oh, I didn't make it to church last Sunday, so I'm going to pray an extra five minutes every day this week. Or looking down on others who, hey, that, that guy? Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't sweep out the kitchen like I do. You know, boasting in something we are doing. And the, the tricky problem is, those are all good things, right? Prayer, spending time with our brothers and sisters, knowing the Word of God, serving each other, those are good things. The question is, are they fountains of joy themselves, or are they merely conduits that are pointing and leading us to something different? Are they rest stops along the way, or are they the destination? What does our heart really want? To get to where God is calling us to go, and not cease until we get there, or to camp out in a season or a time or a gift that he has given us. Because although those things seem to have value, nothing compares to being in Christ. And so Paul says in verses 7 and 11, we must hold all things up next to Christ. That we do compare, but not with each other, I do this, he doesn't do that. I know this, they don't. Oh, they do know that, I don't. But we compare everything we have to the Christ. And if you look at verses 7 and 8, there's a couple words that come up a lot for just a couple verses. What do you think they are looking at it? In the ESV, it says count three times. Some translations say consider and then the word loss or lost is there three times. So Paul is saying it's a matter of perspective. Because to someone sitting down for a great Thanksgiving feast with a wonderful, delicious turkey, and you pull out a little piece of turkey jerky and, and offer it to them, who cares? unless you're obsessed with turkey jerky. <laughs> you have the whole Thanksgiving feast there. But if you're stranded on an island with nothing, <laughs> that turkey jerky looks like a Thanksgiving feast right about then. <laughs> if Christ is greater than anything, we don't worry about losing anything else. We don't even consider anything else, really, unless we think about what it does to push us towards him so that we know him more. And so Paul says, nothing I have obtained is worth more than Christ. Right? I count, I'm sorry, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's, he's even saying, 
I can trace my line back to the patriarchs, to Abraham. And that is loss compared to knowing Christ. I can quote maybe the whole Old Testament, at least more than you know, anyone else. And that is worthless compared to knowing Christ. And then he says, nothing I will obtain is worth more than Christ, right? I, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That there is no dream, no desire, no goal that if it does not lead me to Christ is worth anything. There is nothing I want or think I need that if it does not push me toward Christ matters. Nothing on the flip side then, nothing we lose can take away from Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In Christ we have righteousness that cannot be surpassed and a resurrection that cannot be defeated. Is Christ's own righteousness greater than any other? That's what he's putting forth for consideration. In verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Is the righteousness of the lawgiver greater than the one who tries to keep the law? <laughs> if so, clinging to Christ in faith is greater than any other attempts to gain righteousness. In fact, in that, if, if that is true, if the righteousness Christ has and that he offers freely to us, if it's greater than anything we can build up on our own, then our identity as forgiven sinners becomes our confidence. So rather than boasting in, I've done X, Y, Z, you can whip out your Bible and say, wow, yeah, Dan's never done this. We come to Christ and say, I, ha I have transgressed this. I haven't followed this. But Christ still accepts me and forgives me. And the greater our understanding of our sin, the greater our confidence becomes, not less. You know? When you get a used car and you're driving it, and you thought you knew what you were getting, <laughs> and you find out, oh wait, uh, the left turn signal doesn't actually work. Oh, wait, uh, the oil leaks. And you're finding out all these problems and you're becoming less and less sure about this car you just bought. <laughs> we are the opposite. Because as we understand more and more, wow, I, I don't love God. We see how much He loves sinners. And our confidence grows. So that as Dane Ortland said, 
with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. Nothing but coming to Him is required, first at conversion and a thousand times thereafter, until we are with Him upon death. Which takes us to Paul's next measure of value in Christ. Is Christ's power greater than any other? Is what Christ can do for us in our struggles, in our trials, in our sufferings greater than any other? It may not seem like it at times. That's what people are saying about Paul. He's in prison. He's not getting to preach the gospel like he wants. He's losing money. He's you know, languishing there. It does not look like Christ is doing anything for him. <laughs> it looks like Christ has no power. But Paul is going even further to say, is the power of the one who created life greater than the one who received it? Because if so, clinging to Christ, even in suffering, is greater than any of our attempts to overcome death, to flee suffering. He said that he's lost all things in order to gain Christ. And then verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You don't really understand the power of something until you have experienced it or experienced something it can overcome. As if we were to say, wow, he is the best soccer player here. So amazing. And I go, oh, okay. You know, I'm trying to imagine. I played a little soccer. Maybe I can take him. And we go and play and he smokes me. Like, wow, now I know. <laughs> right? I played against him. <laughs> And so Paul is saying here that suffering in Christ actually becomes our confidence. That suffering increases our confidence. Because we see, oh, this is the rejection that Christ suffered. Oh, this is the kind of suffering Christ endured and never gave in to temptation or sin like I have. Oh, this, this is the death he defeated. Unless Christ returns soon, we will all taste death. And in that moment, we will know, not just intellectually, but we will taste the power of death that Christ crushed when he rose from the grave. And in that weak and terrible, crushing moment, we will finally understand how great the power of Christ is. So that our death itself becomes an opportunity to rejoice in the gospel and in the Lord. As one theologian said, thus the paradox that pain becomes a mark of ownership and an assurance that you belong to Christ. 
And since nothing can compare to this righteousness and this resurrection, Paul strains forward to lay hold of Christ. I don't know if you've ever done one of those inflatable games where they strap you into a bungee cord and you run down this little inflated alleyway with a beanbag and you try and put the beanbag as far as you can before the bungee cord yanks you back. And Paul says, it, do- it doesn't matter what's pulling back on me. I'm going to keep going towards Christ. The worth of Christ drives Paul forward. Because, as he says, if there are still deeper glories in Christ than we have tastes, tasted, nothing will hold Paul back. Right? Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on. And if Christ has laid a hold of him, nothing will hold Paul back. Perhaps motivating him even more in verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That whatever else drags back at us, sin, suffering, weakness tries to drag us away from Christ, Christ has laid a hold on us and is dragging us toward Him. If Christ is worth more than anything else, nothing will hold Paul back. And so he does one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That it doesn't matter if if the things he used to boast in, if he doesn't have them anymore. That if his mental facilities fade, if he's overset with Alzheimer's or dementia, if his body is crippled by illness or persecution, and he's locked in a jail cell, not being able to go and proclaim the gospel wherever he wants, Christ still lies in front of him. And if Christ himself is the goal, nothing will hold Paul back. And that worth of Christ gives him joy right now because he knows the goal is certain. He He knows that he's going to get to Christ. And so now we see why he says in chapter 1, verse 12, that he has joy even though he's in prison. Or as he says in chapter 1, verse 17, he has joy even though other people are trying to destroy his ministry. Or that as he says in chapter 1, verse 21, he starts talking about it's game to die. He's going to have joy in death because Christ is still there in front of him. Or why he keeps saying in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Because that doesn't change, regardless of everything else that changes in our lives. The call of Christ is unyielding, unflinching. And now we, say, we see why he says in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, I have learned in every situation to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and need. <laughs> he is Christ. He can't lose Christ. No matter how rich he is, poor he is, 
how hungry he is, how full he is. He has Christ. Christ is offering himself to sinners. His righteousness, his life, his joy. And that is the path Paul is calling us to. And the mind that, of joy that he calls us to hold on to in verses 15 and 16 as he wraps up this section. And this is the app to install in our mind the glasses by which we see everything clearly, the search engine that we use, the thought that Christ is worth more than everything else. And so Paul calls us to have the mind of the mature. As he says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And so we can learn from Christians who have gone before us. We can study church history. We can read biographies of Christians. You can talk to a senior saint or someone who's older than you in the church and learn from them. You know, the pitfalls of boasting in flesh, in these things, and the joy of clinging to Christ. We can encourage one another that Christ himself is our treasure when others are, are, are are struggling to hold on to that fact when someone among us loses their job when our sister suffers pain we can encourage them with words of substance in Christ not the empty things that people say to each other we might be tempted to say oh it's going to be better <laughs> things will look up We have Christ himself to offer, brothers and sisters. And we can train the next generation that there is joy to be found. The world is, is in our hearts, are trying to convince us of a gospel of self. You are the one who decides what is best for you. You are the one who decides what makes you happy. You are the one who can determine what your dreams are, how far you will go in your life. Even such things as what your own gender are. And it is easy for us to see that gospel of self, self, self and preach a different but similar gospel of self, self, self. You need to work harder at memorizing your Bible. You need to serve at church. You need me the, these things, you need to do them. You need to be like this without pointing them to Christ, without showing them how studying the Word, how memorizing the Word, how serving others is pushing us not inward to ourselves, but up to Christ. And so let us grow in the mindset that God gives His people that this, this awesome thing the end of verse 15 if in anything you think otherwise God will reveal that also to you if there's something you are treasuring more than Christ God's going to show you we can seek this mindset we can struggle for it struggle against our sin because God wants us to treasure Christ and to be enthralled by his love that he's not exposing our disobedience or our sin or our love of other things because he wants to embarrass us. 
He's not telling us to confess our sins to our brothers because He wants us to look small or ashamed. God wants us to delight in Christ, to see how all of those things, the Word, fellowship, creation, like we just sang about, pushes us to Him. And so He is going to transform our minds as we see Christ. And so let us hold steady to the mind we have obtained, as Paul urges us in verse 16. Paul keeps pushing us over and over to rejoice in the Lord because that is the gospel we have received. To find joy in the Savior who makes sinners pure and blameless. To find joy in the King who will, as it says in the end of chapter 3, transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. To find joy in the God who, as chapter 2 says, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Paul is pushing us back to Christ because Christ is the source of joy. That everything that is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy is pointing us to Christ. And so we can enjoy food and fellowship and games and reading and sports and warm sweaters on a cool summer evening when we see that they are giving us a, a taste of the glory of God. And Paul pushes us back to what we have obtained, Christ himself, because he will overshadow anything else we desire that we can let go of our fears of losing possessions and jobs and prestige and reputations and relationships and health and life itself because they were only ever meant to lead us to God, to Christ. Through the gospel, the path to joy is open for us, brothers and sisters. Christ, our joy, is calling us to press on to Lay a hold of Him. And we will find to be true what that gospel hymn says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go stra- grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's close in prayer and then song. Lord, we, th- we thank you for your mercy, that it is your, your delight, your desire to take those who have rebelled against you, who have rejected you, who deserve nothing but death, and to lavish joy upon them, to, to, to give us peace and comfort that even before you opened our eyes to the glories of our salvation you were kind to us every day with food and family and friends and things to do and rest and sleep and the seasons and that now through your word you have revealed your son to us 
who gave his own life so that we who despised you may be washed clean of our sin, may be given a righteousness that is pure and perfect and unfading in the person of Christ, and that we are united with him. And so that as we taste suffering, as we so we taste brokenness and our weakness and death. We have confidence that in all these things we are more than conquerors through the power of Christ. So we ask that you would humble our hearts, you would renew our minds, so that in all things we would seek to know, to treasure, and to love Christ. His name we pray, amen.